Okay, so now I feel slightly bad uh, for the introduction I gave to Dad. Uh, I did crack a few jokes, however, Dad got me uh, before the introduction even began. Uh, as he got to the microphone, he said, I just want to let everyone know, if you're not aware, there are other classes. You know, there's other, there's other rooms, there's other speakers you could go to, uh, but I appreciate everyone that's here. It's been pointed out this week already that uh, James... His counterpart in the Old Testament is Jacob, or at least the, the Hebrew name uh, for James is, is Jacob. And if you remember the life of Jacob, what he's been through, uh, it starts in, in about Genesis 31 is when the action really, really picks up. And Jacob has burned bridge after bridge. All the relationships in his life seem to be falling apart. And it begins with uh, his brother Esau, of course, and that comes back to bite him later. And then, of course, his father and then his uncle Laban. And if you look in Genesis chapter 31, uh, in verse 2, I believe it is, where it says that Jacob is listening. He's been living with Laban for a while, working with Laban, and he's listening to Laban's sons talk. And he begins to make the connection that he's no longer welcome there anymore. He realizes that after he is, uh, he's accumulated his wealth from Laban, that his sons are upset about that. And so, Laban, or, so Jacob decides to take off and leave. So he runs. And then we have, in, verse, in chapter 32 and 33, that whole scene with Esau, the, the, what he's most famous for, I believe, is he sends up this prayer to God. He's nervous. He's terrified about seeing Esau uh, because he's afraid that Esau is going to be angry about what uh, he had done early by, by taking his birthright. So he sends up this prayer to God, and before he even waits for an answer, he decides to set his own plan in motion. And so he takes his, his servants and he takes his family and he tries to send them on ahead of himself in order to appease Esau, his brother. Then he wrestles with God and then we know his name is changed uh, to a name that literally means he that wrestles with God. I'm so glad that our names don't work the same way today and uh, that you're not named for something that you're known uh, for because uh, who, who knows what my name would be or, or even my brother's name uh, would be. But when we look at, at, at James, it's already also been pointed out that James wrestled with God as well, wrestled with his own brother, uh, Jesus, and he wrestled with his own faith, and he had to grow into that faith, and he had to, uh, to grow in his own way. Now he's talking to an audience. After he's done talking to the teachers, he begins talking to the members, and he talks to an audience that is currently wrestling with God. Now, if you're a preacher or if you're an elder this morning, I'm assuming you're here because you looked at the text and you saw uh, that James calls the members in, in his crowd, he calls them quarrelsome, he calls them selfish, he calls them adulterous, he calls them murderous, he calls them envious. So I'm assuming that you have congregations that are pretty similar, that your congregation is just ripe with murderers. And so you're here to try and figure out what we're going to do about that. We often throw our hands up in frustration at the problems in the church today. We give up on the church, I think, way too easily. If you look in the New Testament and you look at some of the writings of Paul, he writes two letters to the church at Corinth, and in those letters you can read about some terrible things that are going on in the congregation, some very scandalous things that are going on in that congregation, and maybe some of us look at those things and we think, boy, those are split-worthy. There should be a split over some of those things. They should divide themselves up. Or you look at John as he writes to the seven churches of Asia while he's on the island of Patmos. Six of those churches, if you read about the things that they're dealing with, maybe we look at some of those congregations and we think, boy, those are some split-worthy issues. They should divide themselves up. 
And maybe as we read down through verses 1 through 10 in chapter 4, we look at what's going on. What causes the quarrels, the bickering, the fights among you in verse 1? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, you can't obtain. So you fight and you quarrel and you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Wow. All of a sudden, maybe the congregations that we're a part of or that we work with seem a little bit better. When we look at the things that are going on here, maybe we're not that bad. Maybe they should split. You know, there's a lot in this part of the world. I grew up in in Colorado for the most part, and there weren't too many congregations. There weren't too many churches of Christ, but out here, there's a lot. It seems to me, coming from that atmosphere, that there's a church of Christ on every corner. And some of those, if you look into the history way back, there were splits. And these congregations popped up because of splits. Why did they split up? I'm not sure. I don't know what was happening in all of those congregations, but I do know that God and the writers of our Bible did not give up on churches that easily. Instead, James, the answer that he gives is more hopeful, it's more helpful, and it's more optimistic. There was a man who became lost for over 24 hours while he was hiking in Colorado. Uh, And he didn't plan to be out all day, uh, but he got lost on some of the trails. And so his family became worried about him. And so they called search and rescue. And seven different search and rescue teams began to scour the mountain looking all over for him. And they called him. They called the man that was lost. And maybe you think, well, he didn't have cell service or his phone died while he was lost out in the wilderness. This man who was lost got every single one of those phone calls but he didn't pick it up because he didn't recognize the number. (laughs) Before we begin, if we find ourselves feeling lost or miserable or unfulfilled, we should consider our text this morning as a call, a call from God. Maybe this is the portion of James that we read and we look down through all of these problems and you know there's, there's many checklists in the New Testament and we go down through some of the things that they're struggling with and then we begin looking around to see who it applies to. And we go, boy, I wish that uh, Sister Gretchen was here to hear this because this, is, this describes her perfectly. Or I wish Cletus was here. Man, this just describes him perfectly. If your name is Gretchen or Cletus, I'm not talking about you. I just try to pick two names that I don't hear very often. I wish they were here to listen to these things because, man, they really need to hear this. But maybe we should look at the product of selfishness, or we should look at the side effects. And I think that if we really look at, at the side effects of selfishness, and really that's at the heart of what they're struggling with, then we'll see that those maybe land a little bit too close to home. So James begins with one question, but he answers two. Where is the fighting coming from? Selfishness. Well, what does this selfishness lead to? I'm going to summarize this all up in a wor- uh, uh, one word as you look at the rest of this text. Misery. It ends up in misery. The whole group is completely miserable because they're only looking out for themselves. Misery is described as a state of feeling great distress, distress in both the mind and the body. 
there is a, a, an insect. I don't know if you're an insect person. I am. Uh, I think they're, they're kind of cool. There's an insect called the bullet ant. And the bullet ant is notorious for having the most painful sting there is. Well, there's a tribe in the Amazon called the Sateri Mawi tribe. And boys as young as 12, if they want to become a man, if they want to prove that they're a man, they must go through this, this twisted ritual. They go out into the Amazon, they pick, they handpick their own bullet ants, and then they fashion all these ants into a glove. And then they stick their hand inside that glove 20 times for 10 minutes. And if they can endure the pain while doing the dance and all of that that goes along with it, then they're a man. If you were observing this ritual, and then you went up to one of these 12-year-old boys after that ritual was completed, and you walked up to them, and then you said, oh, your hand is swollen, and it's red. What did that? Why is it so painful? Where did all that pain come from? They might look at you like you're crazy. Did you not just see me stick my hand into this glove filled with bullet ants? But sometimes, our misery might just be a mystery. It sure seems like that with, with the crowd that James is talking to. What causes all these quarrels and fights among you? Maybe some of them are sitting and they're scratching their head and they're looking around at, at all the other members that are there and going, I know what the cause of all this bickering is. It's you, it's you, it's you, it's you, and all of them are doing that. But James is trying to redirect that finger and get them to point it at themselves. The problem is your selfishness. That's where all these problems are coming from. Sometimes our misery might just be a mystery, and we wonder, why are we feeling so depressed? Why are we anxious? Why is there so much tension? Why do I feel unsettled or bitter or in a fog or lost or angry or discontent or envious or sensitive or grumpy or prickly or prone to lash out or prone to break down? How come we're so hard to get along with at times? And maybe it's tempting for us as well to look and point at someone else to be the problem. Let's look at the side effects here. Starting in verse 2, you desire things, but you don't get them. You want things, but you're not getting them. The word want there means to pursue zealously. The word desire there, it means to boil over with. And if you look at, at what they have, this, this in, the intense desire, they have this craving, and yet they come up short. The hunger that they have is still there. Now I want you to imagine that you go into a buffet, and this buffet has all of your favorite foods. You go in there and there's chicken fried steak, there's sushi, no sushi eaters in here. Hmm. There you go, maybe there's, a, let's see, collard greens, cornbread, biscuits and gravy. And so you begin eating all as much as you can. And at the end of that feast, all your favorite foods, you still have those hunger pains. That's what the members were dealing with. They, want, they had these cravings and so they pursued them and they still came up short. They were still hungry. And I also want you to notice here that so you murder and you are envious in the same verse, in verse 2. You kill and are jealous of others, but you still don't get what you want. Notice how murder and envy are side by side. It's humbling sometimes to look at how God sees things. It's a little bit differently than we do because as a society, we lock up those that murder, but we don't really lock up those that are envious but God puts these two sins side by side through James. You murder and are jealous of others, but you still don't get what you want. And so you bicker and you argue and you fight. A good example of this, if you wanted to see this in scripture, is Acts chapter 17 and verse 5. In this, in this portion of scripture, Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica. And so Paul begins to preach to the Jews there. And some of the Jews believe what Paul has to say. Some of the Jews don't. The non-believing Jews 
become envious that Paul can gather a following so fast. And so what they do, that envy that builds up inside of them, leads them to hire what the NIV describes as vile men of rabble. Vile men of wickedness. So let's just say some murderous muscle. And they get them to start civil unrest and riots. And they attack a man, not Silas, not Paul, but a man named Jason, who was merely associated with the church. They took it out on someone else. And do you think they came up satisfied? When we're left feeling empty, I want us to look at verses 2 and 3. If we're left feeling empty and we're not sure why, maybe our cravings are unhealthy. That word ask there means to crave or desire. They were, they, they were either asking God, they were, they were begging God for something and not receiving it, or they, were, they weren't asking God at all. There was a restaurant uh, in Colorado called Hacienda Colorado. Uh, I don't know Spanish, but I think that means house, house of Colorado. Uh, and this, this restaurant was set aside above all others because they had unlimited chocolate milk. Now, Dad said uh, yesterday, and he was teaching a class on illustrations, and he said, if you ever use a personal illustration, you need to keep two things in mind. One, use them sparingly. I only have one. Number two, don't make yourself look like the hero. I think I checked both of those boxes. There's unlimited chocolate milk, and so me and my younger brother decide to have a chocolate milk drinking contest. So the waitress brings out one cup, two cups, three cups, four, five, six. I don't remember how many we drank in total. I know I tapped out first, but at the end of that chocolate milk drinking contest, we were miserable. And we began to walk outside those doors, maybe hobble outside those doors. And when the sun hit us, my mouth began to salivate. I began to get a little bit queasy, and so did Carl. And I don't think we made it to the car before What goes down must come up, and it was all over the parking lot. What James points out here to his audience is what you fill yourself with, what's inside your heart, eventually it's going to come out. So let's examine what they had inside of themselves. Themselves. They were filled up with themselves. That was the problem. They were selfish. And so they were only looking out for what they want, not what God wants. And so James will ask them uh, a couple of different questions, but he'll phrase it in a way that may not seem like a question at first. So when a war of passion is raging within us, we ought to ask, what do I want and why do I want it? What do I want? What am I passionate about? What is is my craving right now? What do I want more than anything else and why do I want that thing? Why are we so miserable? Verses 4 and 6 says, you people are not faithful to God. You adulterous people. That's some pretty strong language. You've cheated on God. You're not faithful to God. You should know that loving the world is the same thing as hating God. Anyone who wants to be friends with this evil world becomes God's enemy. And then he asks this question, do you think that scripture means nothing? In other words, do you know what God has to say? Do you know what God wants? The scripture says the spirit of God is made to live in us, wants us only for himself. Connect this up to verse 2. God's jealous. You're jealous. You're envious of others. Well, God's envious too. God's jealous too. Do you know what God wants? Do you know what God has said? God wants you. And we can connect this to several verses in the Old Testament, one of which is Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, where it says that God is a jealous God. He wants you more than anything else. And this is, we can find this in, in many other books of the Old Testament. But what about what God wants? What's our craving and why do we want it? 
Verse 6, thankfully, God treats us better than we treat each other. It says, but the kindness God shows is greater. As scripture says, God is against or opposed to the proud, but he's kind to the humble. Do we know how to overcome our misery? When we're in that state, we feel empty, we feel depressed. Do we know how to get out of that state? Well, this is where we have this hope. And I want you to notice in verses 7 through 10, you can pretty much ask the question how after each and every one of these statements. In verse 7, so give yourself to God. How? Stand against the devil. He will flee from you. Verse 8, how? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How? Well, you're sinners. And so cleanse your life of sin. You're trying to follow God and the world at the same time, and it's not working. So make your thinking pure. Verse 9, how? Be sad, be sorry, and cry. Change your laughter into crying. Change your joy into sadness. Verse 10, how? Be humble before the Lord, and he'll make you great. What we see here is a five-step fight to greatness. Verses 7 through 10, and you can remember these five steps by give, stand, draw, cleanse, and cry. These are some of the key words that are in this section, or mourn. So let's look at that first one there. Give. Give yourself to God. The word there is special because it means a decision to bow. It's voluntary submission. That's what it begins with, and it can begin right now. There's no need for a a public invitation, uh, for for instance. It can be a personal decision to voluntarily submit yourself or place yourself under the authority of God. The second one there, stand. This is a disciplined resistance. Stand against the devil. Resist or place yourself against him. Romans 13 and verse 2 reminds us that we're all resisting something. That we're all taking a stand against something. And if you look at how the Bible breaks everything down in twos, you have the lost and you have the saved. And even within the book of James, you see with the tongue, you can praise God, you can glorify God, or you can sin in some horrible ways with the tongue. And all the way through the book, we have these examples of it's either one or the other. You're either serving God or you're going against God. So we're going to take a stand. Stand against the devil. Don't stand against God. Resist and place yourself against him. Verse, verse 8, draw. Draw yourself near to God. Now this is, is one of those, if someone came up to you and said, now the pro- you're facing these problems in your life, what you need to do is to bring yourself closer to God. You need to draw yourself closer to God. Our first question should be how. How do I do that? How do I draw near to God? Every sinful habit, every sinful behavior inclination that we remove is one step towards the Savior. It it all begins with that decision. Decide to submit yourself to God and then fight. Take a stand against something. Take a stand against the devil. And then remove these sinful habits from your life. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. So how does God take a step towards me? If I take a step towards God, how does he take a step towards me? That word draw means to attach or cling to. So what this is saying is attach yourself to God. He'll attach himself to you. Hold God's hand and he'll hold yours. So how does he draw near to us? He forgives those sins. Those sinful habits that we have that we decide to drop, that we decide to shun and quit, we drop the sin, he drops the charges. That's a a, a relationship, a spiritual relationship that God has designed all of us to be able to get into. Verse 9, then cleanse. It's one word, cleanse. But if you look at the words to follow, like afflicted, mourn, and weep, This cleansing process seems pretty painful. 
This is a dedication to purification. It's the idea of fleeing from defilement, freeing yourself from habitual sin. And if it sounds painful, it's because it is. God tells us to avoid things, and and really we can see this in the Old Testament as well. When God tells us to avoid something, he's not setting up a a fence, he's setting up those guardrails. He's not trying to make our lives miserable, he's trying to keep us from a miserable life. And so cleanse yourself, tear tear those those sinful habits out of your life. And so we have afflicted, mourn, and weep. And it might seem like James is being a little bit redundant here. It sounds like he's just saying cry, cry, and cry. But each of those words are different. Afflicted. This is the, a word that means misery of endured hardship. It's a prolonged process. Then you have that word mourn. It's the same word as the, the word lament. We have an entire book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. And if you read through Lamentations, it's a book that expresses this humiliation, this suffering, and this despair that, of Jerusalem for, by her people after the destruction of the city by the Babylonians. An entire book expressing lament and sorrow and mourning for the things that they've gone through. So you have this prolonged misery, this the prolonged affliction, and then there's that word weep. means to sob and to wail. Matthew 26, 75, we have the same word that's used there. This is where Peter remembers the words that Jesus said to him before that rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. And it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. That weeping followed a recognition of sin. It's when all that weight of sin came crashing down. You see, this is not just about going through some painful process. This is about seeing things the way God sees things. This is about looking at the world the way that God looks at the world. And so James is trying to bring his audience out of themselves. Stop being selfish. Look at the world the way that God sees it. Avoid these miserable sins in the first place. Don't fill yourself up with self because it's an incredibly painful process if we want to be right with God and enter into that relationship with him. And then we have the hope here. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. God will lift you up. The word humble there means to reduce yourself to a level plane, to have a modest view of self. Now, when you think of humble, I'm not sure what you think of, but there's a couple of different ways that, uh, that might come into your mind as you think about this word humility or humble. There's hypocritical humility, This might be someone in the church family uh, on Sunday, let's say, uh, might come up to you and say, you've got a great heart. You're so loving. But you respond with something like, well, you know, we've all got problems. We've all got things in our life where no one's perfect. And maybe that's because, you know, we're not sure how to take a compliment entirely. Or maybe it stems from the guilt of sin. That when you hear a compliment like that, you know that Sunday is showtime for the Christian. And that you've merely dressed up as one, but Monday through Saturday you have a nine to five with Satan. Maybe there's something else going on here. Holy humility, and what James is talking about here, is completely different. It's the characteristic of someone who's been reborn, forgiven. Someone who's rededicated themselves to God, and in James' audience, he's likely talking to Christians here who need to get right with God. But this is someone who's had their pride shattered through that purging process, the cleansing process. It's someone that understands that I'm nothing without God. I need to be a little bit less selfish. It's someone who is intimate with that feeling of relief that comes from confession. Someone who's grown in gratitude by the amazing grace that we know that we don't deserve from God. It's someone who looked at sin in the face and said, no more. No more, no matter how painful it is, no matter how painful it is to pull Satan's hooks out of our soul, no more. And making that decision to submit to God. 
Someone who made all those hard choices, all that submitting, all that choosing to draw near to God, that cleansing, that crying, that humbling process, the one who gave themselves to God to be painfully scraped clean. And then we see here at the the end in verse 10, this is the light at the end of the tunnel. God resurrects the dignity of the redeemed. God takes the humble and he lifts them up. He embraces the humble like a proud father. He replaces misery with joy. And it's a joy that the miserable world literally can't understand because they haven't experienced it yet. See, because most of the world that we live in and even the world that's creeped into the church is still believing that what they're in it for is themselves. I want to be a Christian because I want to be recognized. I want to be a Christian because I want people to see me as a good person. I want to be a part of this particular church because I want people to see how great I am. What do we want? What are our cravings? Some people want revenge. Some people want an apology. Some people want a pony. It's all about what we want. But what James is trying to get his audience to do is to let themselves go. And we have the recipe for it right here. If you want to remember, maybe just a mantra that's, that sums up this section of scripture. Lose within, lose without, win within, win without. You see, when we lose that battle within ourselves, we lose that battle with sin, we lose without too. If we win within, if we overcome these sins, we draw near to God and God takes that step towards us and we go through that cleansing process and we're humbled, that's a win. And if we're humbled, God exalts us, that's a win. This five-step fight to greatness, it's give, it's submit, it's draw, it's cleanse, and then there's that victory. The victory we've been looking for, the things that we want. Our cravings have been turned into the cravings that God has as well. We want the same things that God wants. We see the world the same way that God sees the world. James provides a warning and a way out. Selfishness doesn't make you holy, it makes you hollow, and that's what you see. You see a miserable group of people that are wrestling with themselves. Jacob eventually wrestles with God, and then he, he turns his, his life around, or he, he becomes uh, Israel, which means to, to wrestle with God, and you can watch Israel go through the wilderness. You look at how James wrestled with his brother Jesus, and then he comes around, and now he's writing this letter through the inspiration of God. And every one of us in here have wrestled with God ourselves too. Because whenever we're confronted with a situation where it's either what I want or what God wants, sometimes it's difficult to let go of self and to pursue what God wants. This is the rescue call. This is a call from God. God's calling us in James chapter 4, and we have a choice to make. 